Right. I agree with you in theory. In theory, communism works. In theory. In theory. Hey folks, this is Nate, uh, one of your hosts of Works in Theory Pod here, and uh, just wanted to let you know before you start the episode, uh, this episode was supposed to be preceded by a couple of short episodes, uh, we were going to call them Theory Bites, that uh, were on shorter pieces, in this case having to do with child liberation and that sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties uh, on my part, those episodes, uh, at least my recordings of them, seem to have been deleted. And so if you hear us mentioning in this episode uh, anything about those child liberation pieces, that's what we're referring to. We're going to try to see if we can still get those out to you all, but uh, just so you know and don't get confused. All right, enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Works in Theory podcast, the podcast where vital impressions uh, will be substituted for the wearisome reading of books. I'm Nate, one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined by Tom. Hello. And Alicia. Hey. And today the theory we're going to be talking about centers around education. We're going to be talking about uh, one large piece by the American philosopher John Dewey, and then um, some supplemental work by the Spanish anarchist and, uh, I don't know, educational theorist, maybe you'd call him, Francisco Ferrer, as well as like some supporting documents by Emma Goldman. And I thought before we jump in, we might talk a little bit about why we're doing an episode on education. Um, we, we've talked a lot of, when setting up this episode about the fact that none of us have kids personally or are even necessarily that close to any kids in our lives. So we don't have a firsthand experience of what education is like uh, right now anyway. You know, it's been several decades since I was in school. But I think that education is sort of like an important topic for us to cover because it's sort of like always something that is picked on by the left and by anarchists in particular as being, um, as it exists now, sort of merely a training for work, a training for uh, being part of a hierarchy, learning to obey orders, uh, things like that. And, you know, and obviously it's mostly involves children. So it's sort of like setting up the next generation to uphold that status quo. Um, And so, you know, you probably won't be surprised to hear that, a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this episode is critiquing the way schools are now. I don't have kids in my life. I am not in school, so it seems like something that I may want to get as far away from as possible. But I do think education is just critically important. I um, kind of worked in outdoor education for a while, and I also helped to run a free school locally. So even when I wasn't in school, I, you know, it's, it's, it is just critically just important. And, um, we've done a couple takes of this intro, so I don't want to rip Tom off, but Tom had a really excellent reframing for the idea of, uh, how education fits in. I'm going to just foreshadow Tom here. You're going to force me to say it. <laughs> I, you have to say it, man. It was so good. Education seems like really important uh, for helping society run knowledge, you know, having, making sure that people know basic facts and how to learn. And the way that school seems to be set up is this idea of getting through it so that you can get to work as opposed to like life should be about learning and work is kind of like, it's kind of the thing that we have to do to make sure, 
you know, like labor is something we have to do to make sure that we stay alive, but that's the end goal should be more about learning. I think I actually said it better last time, which sucks that we lost that. <laughs> yeah. But the, the general point I think is important that, and you know, this I think is also going to be touched on during the episode here, but not just that it's like sort of morally dubious in the sense that it's reifying these hierarchies and, uh, you know, even like in the US teaching kids this like sort of toxic patriotism. So it's not just morally dubious, but it's also like just sort of like technically useless in the sense that it's not doing the job it purports to be doing. It's not really teaching people. One thing that has been really hard with with this episode in particular for me is again, no to have kids, really disconnected from education, you know, like in a traditional sense or whatever. At this point I'm not in school or anything. And there's just so much to know, like, it's kind of a, a weird catch-22 of, like, I need to become educated to speak about education. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's been so tricky. It's just such a broad-reaching topic. I am hoping that we can find a loophole in this and mostly just stick to what we read. You know, there's so much we can tie in, um, even as people who are not directly involved with, you know, child-rearing and education um, I've I've noticed that education and schooling is in the news a ton, um, just with how challenging it's been during the COVID-19 pandemic and like up here in Canada anyway, hopefully broader, but I know how Canadian news media <laughs> works. Um, there's just very recently, um, there was a mass grave uncovered near an Indigenous residential school and just dealing with the ongoing genocide and how education and schooling is complicit in that and structural to that here. So it's big, but we, we did very specific readings um, that are historic and set in the early 1900s and um, still do have a ton to teach us about how we still frame education and learning today. Yeah, 100%. The first thing we're going to talk about is a 1913 piece by uh, Francisco Ferrer. Uh, the whole piece is called The Origin and Ideals of the Modern School. We are particularly reading Chapter 9, um, The Reform of the Schools. And then uh, the large piece that we read for this is called Experience in Education by John Dewey. And this is sort of like a follow-up to a 1916 piece he wrote called Democracy in Education, uh, which is much longer. We were not interested in reading. Uh, but also, happily, we found out that experience in education is sort of a reflection on that that larger work. And um, It's the tightened-up version, the easy-to-digest. Yeah, we're glad and, that he did it. <laughs> and, and sort of updated. Uh, you know, like I said, the first one was 1916, second one, 1938. So, like, updated with sort of his experience of the new schools, the modern schools, in that intervening time. And so you might kind of think, well, how applicable is this going to be if, if we're talking about, you know, the early 1900s? And I think that the reason that these uh, pieces are important and the reason that a lot of the writing on changing education, I think that you find uh, is around this same period is because this is like sort of not long after like modern states start enacting compulsory education. So prior to that, you know, education is just sort of like the it's just sort of for the children of the elites, right? Um, but in Spain, where Ferrer was writing, uh, 1857 is when compulsory education starts. And again, the piece we're reading from him is 1913. We're also going to be reading a piece by Goldman called Francisco Ferrer in the Modern School. That's from 1917. And then in the U.S., uh, compulsory education began 
nationwide in 1918. And so um, the piece by John Dewey we're reading, Experience in Education, that's almost exactly 20 years after uh, compulsory education becomes a thing in the U.S., and so like these, uh, this was like, you know, as you can imagine, like a really ripe time to be reflecting on what education means and whether the sort of education that the state was enacting was what, you know, what you wanted the kids of your society to, to be being taught. Um, so again, uh, he's writing in Spain. Uh, in 1857, Spain made education uh, compulsory, uh, basically because there was just a really high illiteracy rate, one of the highest in Europe at the time. And uh, this is obviously as like we're entering the modern age and um, it just sort of became untenable for, for modern industrializing states to have illiterate or uneducated populations. And so, um, yeah, again, 1857 is the first law that Spain passes, making education compulsory. And then Ferrer himself actually uh, was executed um, by the Spanish state in 1909. And uh, this piece that we're reading, The Origins and Ideals of the Modern School from 1913, uh, was obviously uh, published posthumously. So he's writing within 40 or 50 years of uh, universal education in Spain. So he would have been, I don't know how old he was at the time of this. It's probably something we should look up. But he would have been among the first generation to be a part of that compulsory schooling himself. And so Francisco Ferrer is an anarchist. uh, And he is coming from a position, um, sort of, uh, let's call it hardlined, than what we'll see in Dewey later. Um, He is like approaching the topic of education, like very much seeing it as a project by the state to create like a amenable workforce. Um, Like he does not see education as like a gift the state is giving, but rather something that it's doing for its own benefit. Yeah. Tying into that, Nate, there is a, there's a pretty pertinent quote here uh, about how Rulers have sought to give a more and more complete organization to the school, not because they look to education to regenerate society, but because they need more competent workers to sustain industrial enterprise and enrich their cities. And so you can see Ferrer is really framing it as education is a powerful tool that shapes the entire lives of people as you know, you enter it as you're super young, you can imagine that compulsory education in, you know, the 1800s in Spain was not the like K to 12 education that we have now, but even sticking young impressionable people into some sort of institutional setting at that age, that's where you're going to reinforce some of those core values if education is successful for better or for worse, right? And my understanding is that Education had been primarily driven by the church, by the Catholic Church. Um, I, I think, uh, kind of up to the point where it became compulsory, uh, and so like a lot of education was centered around upholding that institution. And then, as they needed like more literacy, so that like the work worker people could do new work, new kinds of work, um, it became clear like, oh, we can't just be teaching how to read so that people can read the Bible. We need to teach how to read so that they can, you know, communicate at work or something like that. Um, and so I think for rare in particular, it has like a huge amount to say about the church and how it teaches people and how it 
aims towards that that uh, kind of goal, I guess, of like upholding the institution of the Catholic Church more than anything. Yeah, he even says the ruling class allows education that does not disadvantage existing institutions. They took the duty of education from the clergy to have more total control of the of the curriculum. Because of advances in science, people were naturally becoming more educated, and this was a problem. He says, we see clearly that the sole aim of those who strive to attain power is the defense of their own interests, their own advantage, and the satisfaction of their personal desires. So again, he's not sort of mincing words here. He sees education as it existed then, and you know, I think he would probably say as it exists now, as like a specific project by the ruling class to create unamenable population. Like not even that it's just an accidental byproduct, but that it's like a really purposeful, insidious thing that they're doing. To tie that in um, to the historical context a little better, I want to bounce over to that Goldman piece because um, so Emma Goldman wrote something called Francisco Ferrer and the Modern School. And we were kind of first inspired to take on this topic because of this little essay that I dug up. But it really just kind of serves as like a, a context. It was written mostly about Ferrer and his fate. And so at the time, it's there. I think the the Spanish state is trying to take over the education that had once been entrusted more so to the Catholic Church. But it's really clear from um, what Emma Goldman wrote that the church still has a huge stake. And spoiler, uh, it's not even a spoiler. I think Nate already said it. Uh, he, Francisco Ferrer was murdered in 1909. Um and there's a quote from Emma Goldman here that says, had Ferrer actually organized the riots, and these riots are part of the excuse for um, Ferrer being arrested. It was complete bullshit, and he had nothing to do with it, but he was marked. He was a marked man in the eyes of the state and the church. So had Ferrer actually organized the riots, had he fought on the barricades, had he hurled a hundred bombs, he could not have been so dangerous to the Catholic Church and to despotism as with his opposition to discipline and restraint because he didn't um, like the church had accused him. He didn't teach people. He didn't teach kids to hate God. He didn't believe in the existence of a God. He taught um, here the splendor of the sunset, the brilliancy of starry heavens, the awe-inspiring wonder of mountains and seas. And in so doing, like this is the quote that I really love. He made it forever impossible for the poisonous weeds of the Catholic Church to take root in the child's mind. And I think that ties back into um, even the nation state's intentions for education, that that the entire idea behind education is to make sure that you have competent workers to run the city. Hopefully that didn't derail us too much. Um, I don't know that we have to like dwell too, too, too much on this Goldman piece, but I feel like that's a big context that I found pertinent um, with the rest of, of the Ferrer story. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote. Yeah, because ultimately, um, so Ferrer was inspired. Um, I don't think we covered this too much at the beginning, but Ferrer was inspired by uh, Louise Michel and others who um, when he was, he did spend some time in France and learned about alternative methods of schooling uh, when he was there on exile. So he was arrested on charges around an anti-military uprising in Spain when he, he did return to Spain. Um, but they didn't even get him on the specific acts of 
organizing these godless schools. It was his ideas and his revolutionary outlook um, perspective on the potential that education had that the state found so powerful. And I'm not convinced that those ideas ever went away. Like that framing is still there. It is still very powerful. Um, education is still very powerful in shaping our entire outlook on on the world. I don't think we're here to argue that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, um, especially from Ferreira's perspective, the state isn't going to want somebody uh, sort of opening up students' minds in that way, right? Like if they're if the state's point is to just have a, a bunch of people adapted to the social mechanism, is how Ferreira puts it, you know, basically like that are just going to fit into capitalism and be nice little cogs, then you can't exactly teach those cogs to sort of be free critical thinkers. I agree. And the one of the things that I think is really weird is you know, like the state, again, like thinking of it as an entity that has desires or wants or whatever. It's not really like a thing that exists, right? It doesn't exist in like a physical sense of like a singular, well, can, I guess, as a singular person or whatever. But um, I think if we think about the progression of education and how it kind of like ties into, uh, you know, the way that a lot of education is structured is kind of militaristic even where, you know, people are lining up, people are taking roll call, you're, uh, you know, praising the flag. All of those things are not really necessary to be educated. Um, And so we can kind of see just from the way that it's structured with the intent being, you know, I'm sure the teachers are like, no, this is just to keep order. This is to keep things going forward. But then, you know, you have to have your textbook is is approved by the state. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I think that that sounds... So, so many uh, people want to change the textbooks in ways that I don't agree with, but um, but I, I think that there's something to be said for, you know, th- there's a different way to teach things than by a committee that has decided what is appropriate to teach and then, you know, churning that out and then like just trying to get it into people's heads, you know, like the only real goal of that is to process quickly so that people can get through a system so they can move into something else. And that something else is work, is capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you you mentioned sort of like the way that education is done, because we've talked a lot about so far why education is done. And, you know, again, the sort of like morally suspect reasons that the state has for educating the populace. But um, I don't want it to be lost that part of the argument we're making is not just that, but also that like the methods being used are not effective to actually teaching people. Um, I, I like this quote from Ferrer. He's talking about the organization of schools as they exist. And he says, it's, it is unnecessary here to describe that organization. One word will suffice to characterize it violence. The school dominates the children physically, morally, and intellectually in order to control the development of their faculties in the way desired and deprives them of contact with nature in order to modify them as required. This is the explanation of the failure, the eagerness of the ruling class to control education, and the bankruptcy of the hopes of the reformers. Education means in practice domination or domestication. And so especially as we get into the Dewey, we'll sort, we'll see more of like a positive program about like what would you replace the sort of like top-down 
what he calls violent, like pure, pure handing over pre-digested information to students. Um, what's the alternative to that? Yeah. And it's also um, kind of a, a cycle, right? Where um, Ferrer says the teachers are merely conscious or unconscious organs of their will have been trained on their principles from their tenderest years and more drastically than anybody they have endured the discipline of authority. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a handed down almost tradition of how we teach um, ends up kind of uh, solidifying, I guess, this practice. And um, then through, you know, the way that kind of things are structured, we end up continuing to make that solidification happen more and more. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of um, some of the big critiques or, I don't know, the big points about what they call traditional schooling that Dewey's making in the beginning of his book and about how um, it's just, it's so, it's all about these abstract sort of lessons that need to be passed down and the teachers have the curriculum it's written there you just need to transfer this knowledge down to the ready and waiting pupils and uh you don't need to have any sort of philosophy of education is is a big thing that that Dewey talks about you don't need any of that you just need the textbooks and you need the standardized tests and Society will go on as it is going, as it always has gone. We have not learned anything, <laughs> anything new to add to the curriculum. Uh, something that's come up is, sorry, to, to pull like a little bit of a maybe contemporary example is the idea of like still reading the same books that our parents and like maybe even grandparents read in school because you just, that's your reading list. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I think, really pertinent to uh the critiques being made by dewey and uh you know even to some extent by ferrer if if less explicitly but that idea of like passing down uh almost like the knowledge of the ancients like the traditional knowledge that your parents and their parents learned and like that's what you need to know to live in our society as opposed to a type of education that you know dewey calls it like preparing students for the future like giving them the tools to create the world rather than just handing the world to them pre-digested. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to completely sweep over the importance of traditional knowledge, but I think there's a difference between like traditional knowledge that enhances your experience in the world and that limits and boxes in your experience in the world. I think the critique here is the idea of like passing down a set and fixed curriculum. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it, it, we probably can start transitioning into the Dewey here. We we kind of already started to do it. Um, I just want to read like one last long quote from the Ferrer that I think will will help bring us over um, again because I think with Dewey, what we're going to get is more of the positive program of what do we need in education rather than what's wrong with education. And so this last quote I want to read by Ferrer. It might be two quotes. Uh, he says, I would rather have the free spontaneity of a child who knows nothing than the verbal knowledge and intellectual deformation of one that has experienced the existing system of education. We do not hesitate to say that we want men who will continue unceasingly to develop men who, and of course, you know, 
He's writing this in the 1800s. Is why he just keeps saying men. <laughs> men who are capable of constantly destroying and renewing their surroundings and renewing themselves. People whose intellectual independence is their supreme power, which they will yield to none. People always disposed for things that are better, eager for the triumph of new ideas, anxious to crowd so many lives into the one life they have. Society fears such people. You cannot expect it to set up a system of education which will produce them. And I just love that quote. I love the uh, the idea of people who will continue unceasingly to develop, who are constantly destroying and renewing their surroundings and renewing themselves. And uh, again, as as opposed to like the fossilized knowledge of the past, like educating for people who will continue to grow and create and synthesize new knowledge uh, going into the future. John Dewey, the American philosopher who was born in, on October 20th, 1859 and died on June 1st, 1952, uh, has a lot to say about that. So let's move into his piece, Experience in Education. Yeah, so Dewey takes kind of like, a, t- t- I, I think this is a um, like a refinement of an earlier work he had, right? That was um, about democracy and education. Yeah, that's is right. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically Dewey is trying to figure out like, what is the best way? Like he's basically in agreement with uh, Ferrer that education is not working the way that it's, that it's being used, but what is the way to make it work? How do we determine that? And that's what this book was basically was mainly about. He's saying basically it was mainly about uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess like a little bit of context on Dewey, Uh, So Dewey is definitely not an anarchist. Um, He probably would not have even described himself as a socialist. Uh, That being said, he he is one of my favorite philosophers, and he would consider himself uh, a Democrat, the lowercase d. Uh, And so a lot of his theory here is going to be like sort of how education is a social, like democratically created uh, or generated activity. The reason that we're covering him is not just because he's one of my favorite philosophers, but uh, we found some pieces, which we'll link in the show notes, that talk about how the schools set up in America based on Ferrer's model um, often ended up using John Dewey's sort of uh, curriculum or uh, the ideas developed in democracy and education. And so we're going to look at like what some of those are, as well as... Uh, John Dewey's reflections on them 20 years later, right? He talks a lot about experience. The thing is called experience and education. But Dewey is really thorough in needing to define those terms and make clear that um, there's a quote here. It says, departure from the old solves no problems. You need to know where you're going. You need to know your terms and your intentions. And there's a quote that follows that says any experience is, is miseducative, miseducative, miseducative. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I probably had it right the first time. I certainly don't know. What Any experience is miseducative that has the effect of arresting or distorting the growth of further experiences or experience. You can have an experience that engenders callousness you can also have an experience that may be immediately enjoyable and then operates to 
It says here to modify the quality of subsequent experiences so as to prevent a person from getting out of them what they have to give. So some sort of like hollow saccharine, like saccharine sweet, you know, the thing that's just Mm -hmm. like fluffy experience. Like, oh, that was great. But like you take nothing from it. The energy is dissipated and a person becomes scatterbrained is what Dewey says. So you can have experiences but those experiences need to live on in further experiences in order for them to become educative experiences. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and we're going to go into, he like, yeah, has this whole idea of what makes something a, a good experience versus a bad experience and educative versus a miseducative experience. Um, I, I just want to say really quick to ground the reader. Uh, the reason we keep talking about experience and, um, the, the little quote I pulled at the in the intro about uh, vital impressions replacing the wearisome reading of books is that uh, all of these uh, writers have this general idea that the way to do education is to like have kids doing things and experiencing things rather than simply um, being handed knowledge from a book or from a teacher. And so what Dewey's saying is, okay, so we're all in agreement that students need to be sort of like democratically, experientially learning, you know, learning for themselves and things like that, but that it's not like simply enough to just switch from the wearisome reading of books to experiences. Uh, They've got to be the right type of experience. Yeah, Dewey spends, I don't know, the first half of the book basically defining experience, defining experience. how we will define experience like it's it's kind of a weird meta thing i think he does also and he's you know he's kind of does a lot of referencing to at the time in the 30s late 30s talking about uh the the current state of experiential education where he's talking about you know these other schools that are trying to get rid of uh, traditional practices, but they don't have a plan for that. And they're just doing whatever. And I thought that was very interesting because that seems to be a very constant refrain, right? Well, if you're going to get rid of X traditional societal practice, you need Y, you need your plan. You need something that's going to work. And it's hard to tell if something works and you haven't done it yet, but, uh, Dewey is setting out to set to, to determine, you know, like, how can we get that working thing? How can we get better education that's experiential instead of just relying on the easy traditional education? That's obviously not working. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to your point, uh, equally avoiding just sort of like a, a random, not planned out, just bring the kids to the woods and let them play with rocks kind of education. <laughs> not that I think that would be a bad education to be honest, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about, how hollow the idea of spontaneity is something can't just be spontaneously educative it doesn't you know just because you have departed from the rigid curriculum doesn't mean that whatever follows is going to definitely work and definitely be um to open the students minds in a positive way um which i think is is (laughs) where that where those quotes that i uh that i rattled off there a little couple minutes ago we're, we're leading the idea that um, it's the role of the educator or um, as he goes on to say, as you know, the, the educator is a part of the team of this classroom and needs to use 
their own experience and um, their, you know, maybe larger perspective on the trajectory of, you know, your time together to shape those experiences um, the best they can, like without having a prescriptive curriculum um, in, in the sort of rigid, like, you know, you need to know these, this 10 list of trivial facts at the end of this, but um, shaping the experiences or to like sort of create students that will then go on to have yet more experiences that are sort of like self guided and self like they have like an internal locus of control as far as like being curious and engaging in the world and engaging with their you know their other members of society yeah absolutely we can memorize facts in school but that doesn't mean that we are necessarily going to be seeking out more facts later it's like it kind of becomes toiling i guess and the idea of experiential education is to like turn it into more of a curiosity and the 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 thing that uh that tom said uh, very well at the beginning of our last intro that we didn't end up recording by accident (laughs) was something about how uh right now we tend to frame our existence on this planet around needing to work and instead through this idea of experiential education and all the potential that our education system has to be in the center of our experience instead of work. So we, instead of framing our I, entire existence around the need to get a job and make sure that is the thing that we are the most proud of, we can frame our lives around our drive to continue learning and improving and moving in a direction that is liberatory as opposed to prescriptive yeah and it's not to say that someone couldn't frame their life around their work like i think even in my most imagined (laughs) utopia i would be like probably you know focused on doing some kind of work and like enjoying it but i'd be learning more about how to do it and i think that's a big distinction between like i'm done learning and now i do it's not just like a discrete period of time in your life yeah it's not like yeah, I mean, work is absolutely necessary, but like, Lage, Lage Weber, goodness, did I almost say that? <laughs> <laughs> Wage labor and toiling is different from necessary work. Uh, uh, do y'all want to talk about what is traditional education? Uh, Dewey lays out some some ideas of, of what he thinks traditional education is as the starting place of uh, how we can you know, dismantle it basically and figure out what can replace it. We've got uh, sort of a list of things here. Uh, I'll I'll just rattle some of them off. Uh, So what is traditional education? Well, the subject matter consists of bodies of information and skills to be transmitted to the new generation. There are standards of rules and conduct. Uh, There's moral training to conform to rules. Teachers are the agents by which knowledge and skills are communicated and the rules of conduct enforced. It's imposed from above and outside uh, because it's beyond the experience of the learners. And it's taught as a static or finished product with no regard to how it came to be, or I would add how it might change in the future. One of the things he also said about it was that good teachers will use art to cover up the imposition, which I thought was really interesting. It made me thinking of, made me think about the times that I thought, you know, the, the, maybe the best education I had and, uh, educational experiences, I guess. And um, 
And, you know, when your teacher is like, oh, we're going to, I don't know, watch a video or whatever. That's always fun. It's not quite like experiential education, but it's kind of like, you know, or we're going to build a little uh, diorama or something, right? Like using art to cover up the fact that they're still just kind of like pushing knowledge at you and telling you you're just going to ingest this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can even remember I had a, a teacher in high school who was like, considered just a great teacher. He won like all, all sorts of awards for teaching. Uh, he was a history teacher and he would do like little, I don't know what you call them skits, but he would like act out things that he was, that he was t- talking to us. Like he was really charismatic and energetic in that way. But like at the end of the day, like you said, he was just teaching us what was in the textbook. He was just going unit by unit through the textbook. As if the best that modern teachers can do is like dress up and make entertaining whatever's in the textbook kind of thing. Exactly. I I can't remember. We've recorded so many things and messed them up so often. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I can't remember if if I brought this up at some point. I don't think I have talked about it on on the podcast yet where people have heard it. Um, So when I was reading this, I was trying to think of, you know, what are different touchstones of media that we have around something that would be experiential education. And I thought of the Dead Poet Society because I was like, I haven't seen that in a while, but I'm pretty sure that is about experiential education and watching that after or concurrently with reading this book, I think I did it kind of in the middle of it. I really understood that movie in a way that I didn't before um, because it seems kind of like, Oh, Robin Williams is a cool teacher. He's just cool. Uh, he's just, he's just, you know, being funny and like, you know, but the movie is about how he's taking poetry, which is not something I would expect to be experiential. Like, that's it's so abstract how can you experience poetry and throughout the movie he's doing different things of you know like having them shout poetry and then kick a ball or whatever right like he's bringing this kind of like energy to it this kind of like more experiential thing that connects the ideas of the poetry and that makes all the students want to take the class and like form a cult but uh (laughs) it's it's just was it was really interesting uh, movie, really cool movie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Works in theory movie recommendations. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it it was it, it made me think about like you know how how could other subjects that seem like they're not experiential be made experiential, and it doesn't seem that hard. Well, Dewey thinks it'll be really hard. <laughs> he considers uh, traditional education to be the easy way because it, when you're doing experiential education, you've sort of got to take into account each student's individual proclivities, you know, as opposed to the traditional education, which was like one size fits all. And if it doesn't fit you, sorry, you're, you don't have a place in society, basically. Yeah, but on the, in the alternative, we could just rip out pages from the textbook. And and stand on our desks, and yeah. I think <laughs> that'll solve a lot. <laughs> I think so too. Well, I, I was I, I thought of specifically because you were, you know we were talking about the art. A good teacher just kind of using art to cover it up, but you're still learning the same thing. And in that movie, he specifically is like, "We're not going to learn the thing that uh, that they say we need to learn." It's it's just kind of like a whole reframing of how how you learn. Yeah. And so I think we can maybe transition into uh, a little bit about his theory of experience. Uh, We probably won't go too deep into this because it's like, it gets pretty dense in there. But generally, he's talking about experience as leading to growth. Like in his view, 
Like every experience you have is like you're sort of accreting a self, right? Like layer upon layer. And like each subsequent layer is affected by the previous layer and all of the layers that go before it. Uh, So each experience sort of like creates the framework in which future experiences are going to be experienced and like so on and so forth. And so he wants to say what kind of experiences are going to lead to to future experiences that are going to sort of, sort of keep being generative, right? Like you could have experiences that lead you to just stagnate. Uh, like Alicia was saying uh, at the, when we first started talking about Dewey, like experiences that are sort of empty and lead nowhere or lead to, I think Dewey gives the example of like a child being spoiled and like those experiences lead to like an adult who is not interested in like generating more experiences but rather just wants everything to be the same or the way they want it right then. And so that would be an example of a miseducative experience. Yeah, he, he says something like, traditional education relies on simple ideas for philosophy like culture or discipline. And that's why experiential education needs more philosophy because things like, well, it's our culture or it's discipline or it's just how it always is. That's a really easy way to teach, but it's not really useful for creating new experiences because you will just keep repeating them. Yep, exactly. And, you know, he talks about, and I think everybody can sort of understand this. He talks about how, like, not only does the traditional way of education not lead to future experiences, it's like you sort of don't even remember what you learned. Yeah. How often have we, uh, you know, crammed for a test? Like, just got to get the facts for the one day and then I never have to think about this again. Yeah, exactly. Way more times than I ever want to think about (laughs) (laughs) I like this quote he has about it. He says, uh, talking about that very issue, he says, the subject matter in question was learned in isolation. It was put, as it were, in a watertight compartment. When the question is asked then, what has become of it? Where has it gone to? The right answer is that it's still there in the special compartment in which it was originally stowed away. The idea being, you, you know, like you learn it in isolation and then Once you leave that context, it's gone. It's not even really available to you anymore. Not to say that we need to remember every detail of everything we've ever learned, but those sorts of compartments that we put our knowledge in don't then add to the layers of experience that we need in order to continue developing new experiences. You know, it's sort of like just making a point about learning through rote rather than through experience, right? Because I don't know, like I I have talked to a lot of people who had the same experience that like you sort of learn some stuff for a career in college and then uh, you get out and you get the job and you basically don't use anything you learned in school and everything that you use day to day is stuff you learn on the job. Because you're doing those things. That's what you talk about this kind of like with brain development too you you don't use those neurons you lose them you know you're doing these things at work every day and you might not i don't know it's not like we love it and it necessarily leads to more enriching experiences but it's what we do in practice that ends up sticking and the more um context that we do something in the more robust that knowledge is the more easily we can recall it and it also creates a real problem where if we're only learning to work, right, it, be, it then becomes like, well, what things are not necessary to know, right? You just start cutting parts out, you know, why do I need to know math? 
when will I ever use like really high level abstract math or whatever? And it's like, because it makes you a more well-rounded person and because it makes you able to understand things better has nothing to do with what you're going to do in the future. In my opinion, like it might, it has something to do with it. If you're really interested in going to math and mathematics or you're doing something that's heavily relies on it, but most jobs these days don't have that requirement. So like, it's a fair question, but it's framed around when will I use this? It's like, it doesn't matter. It's something you should know so that you understand how the world works. Yeah. Almost like we just got to check it off the list. We just got to say, you learn this, check. Dewey starts talking about a criteria of experience and goes into how do we, you know, change from traditional to experiential education. So like, again, he has like a huge list of of things, I think, that we drew out of the text, Um, like experiences, growth, and Every experience, we talked about this a lot. Every experience opened up new lines of experience. Yeah, exactly. And he's, so then he sort of asks, like, how do we, how do we like, like sort of in the moment apply those criteria of experience? And his idea is that the teacher, like, will sort of transition from being this like top down agent, just handing the predigested knowledge to you, to uh, like Alicia said earlier, like part of the team sort of that the educator being older and having had more experiences and you know presumably having an idea a better idea of what kind of experiences are educative um like that the teacher will sort of like guide the the students um through the experience especially for someone like Ferrer this might kind of bring up questions about well like how do we know like how do how are we towing that line between the teacher being like guiding the experience and uh, and not being sort of a top down uh, hierarchical control situation. Um, and Dewey does address this. He's like pretty uh, thorough. He talks about a sort of like theory of social control and freedom that he thinks addresses this. Here's a quote uh, just to start us off on that conversation. He says, even the theoretical anarchist whose philosophy commits him to the idea that state or government control is an unmitigated evil believes that with abolition of the political state, other forms of social control would operate. Indeed, his his opposition to governmental regulation springs from his belief that other and to them more normal modes of control would operate with the abolition of the state. And so again, he has this, this is sort of like going back to the the point we hammered uh, right when we started talking about Dewey, which is that like, even though this is like a more sort of spontaneous form of schooling, it is not totally spontaneous. Like there is a form of social control going on. And that it's not necessarily a bad thing because he goes on to talk about um, we play games and those games have rules and those rules make up the convention of those games. And if you are all playing this game together uh you aren't no no one playing that game feels like they're being oppressed by the rules of the game yeah and a big reason for that he says is because like the rules have sort of been like consented to almost right agreed to by all even if you know as probably is the case in most games even if like those rules weren't invented by the people playing and I think that plays into the idea of being part of the community, part of the team, part of, you know, we're all playing this game together. And we agree that, like, by playing this game together, you're working towards this, the same end. You're playing the same game. Yeah, you're you're trying to either have fun or you're trying to win or whatever. But you're all in agreement 
that without the rules in place, there's no way to know whether or not you're going to win. And there's often it's not fun when other people do things that are against the rules. You know, you're like, hey, well, we all agreed that this is how we're going to play. And now you're doing this other thing. And then that person usually takes their ball home. Yeah, I agree that it's it's that. And 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 he talks about uh, like imposition of authority normally comes from a place of what's best for the group. Like an umpire making a call, someone might dispute the call, but they believe the umpire has made an error that the that they're establishing their own will and desire. And so, like people, you know, want to make things continue flowing. They want to make things continue kind of working in the context of what they've agreed upon. And so you'll have an umpire, you'll have a person that can make decisions and hopefully you can trust them. And like, that's, I thought that that whole section about that was, was pretty interesting, pretty cool, like way to think about um, how you can have rules without, you know, a lot of formality and without a lot of structure even. Mm -hmm. And importantly, without hierarchy, right? Like, and this is where exactly. this is sort of where he goes in when he mentions the theoretical anarchist before. It's like this idea that you know, like plenty of anarchists uh, will go on and on about the fact that anarchism doesn't mean no rules; it just means no rulers, right? So, like, there are still like social conventions, and the conventions are like enforced socially, but you're part of that society; you're not outside of it. And so, how does this work with the school? The idea is that. You get all of the kids involved in this social environment of learning, and then the, the adult or the teacher would be there to like sort of guide the experience. The rules would be sort of agreed to by all, and I, I don't know, the teacher would sort of be like the umpire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is still somebody there to, um, as it says here, if it's necessary to reinforce those social conventions, they're not doing so from a, as an exhibition of personal power. So it's not arbitrary. We're not like, you know, forcing our will upon somebody. It's you're speaking on behalf of the best interest of the group. Yeah. And that's as opposed to traditional school, which he says forces teachers to exert their own will uh, because the school is not a group or community held together by participation in common activities. Yeah. For instance, things like restriction of movement, demands of silence that cause learning to be mechanical and not actually useful. Yeah. The only freedom that is enduring, that is of enduring importance is freedom of intelligence. That is to say freedom of observation and of judgment exercise on behalf of purposes that are intrinsically worthwhile. The commonest mistake made about freedom is, I think, to identify it with freedom of movement or with the external or physical side of activity. Yeah. And I, I'd like to take a, take a step back there and, and see what you all think about the, this whole idea of the teacher just sort of like being a part of the group and guiding you know, but obviously it sounds like they are still somewhat outside. They, they certainly have some sort of like rights and powers not afforded to other people in the group, you know, the students in this case. Um, and sort of what, what got me wondering about this was when he's giving his examples of uh, situations where somebody's making a decision in the interest of a group, you know, rather than for themselves. Like one of the examples that kind of gave me pause was he mentions like, uh, like the male head of a household. Like a, like a father for a family. And it got me thinking, well, like who is, who decides, you know, whether the teacher is doing it in the interest of the group or in their own interest, you know, who's checking that? Are the students checking it? What, what recourse do they have if they feel like 
the teacher has moved from simply guiding them to controlling them. Basically, I'm trying to see if this is a an answer that the child liberation folks would uh, accept. Does this consist of child liberation? The weird thing is, right, like, if we think about it, is the teacher supposed to be, is everyone supposed to have equal power in this situation? Or, you know, how does a teacher in this situation manage things that are, um, like, children that are i don't know they're sleepy or they're had a lot of sugar or something and they're you know i don't yeah. i don't even know or, maybe that's a bad just, example they just I'm disagree sure with a, you know they just disagree that this is a that the what they're as being asked to do is is good or useful right yeah i guess i keep thinking of like small children but to, we could take it all the way up to high school yeah. and and that would be even more interesting because it's just sure. like, yeah, at that point, you can definitely be arguing with the teacher. Like, I don't think we need to learn this. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, but honestly, in a way, I think it might even be more salient with young students because like, think about it. If you've got like a six-year-old and you're trying to guide them all to an experience and one is just saying like, no, like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do that isn't imposing some sort of control or hierarchical system on this kid to be like, well, you have to because I'm the teacher. I'd be curious to see how that works in practice. Yeah, I suppose it might just be believing maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, well, what do you think? Like, why do we not have to? You just keep asking and questioning what they think of why they don't want to. Yeah. And maybe you could figure out like, oh, wow, that's a whole perspective. I didn't realize that a six-year-old saw yeah, about totally. this. And, uh, and then like reframe and regroup on how you want to teach it because – you know, there's obviously there's going to be things that are like, we all, you really need to learn this. You need to learn addition and subtraction. Um, why don't you want to, what is making this harder? Like, how do we yeah. experientially do that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. The way that schools are organized in that, you know, you have to learn addition and subtraction today. And this is the day we're learning addition and subtraction doesn't really leave a lot of room for big philosophical conversations with each of your pupils whenever they have a gripe with what's going on. So that is definitely a sticking point. I think something that happened um, in the modern schools, like in New York, uh, that Emma Goldman was a part of is that sometimes if like a kid didn't want to learn that day, they just got to go home or they got to go play in the yard or like whatever there were options for them, which um, maybe we don't think about in the context of like American schools today where the teacher needs to have eyes on every single student at every moment in time. Yeah, because not only is a teacher teaching, but they're also like guarding, they're protecting, they're doing all the roles of of society at once. Yeah, which is where some of what Dewey talks about here that like, you know, it does it does make sense to me. It sounds like a an excellent way to like strategize your lesson plan or your week with them talking about how the educator is responsible for a knowledge of the individuals in their group and for a knowledge of the subject matter that will enable ties between the activities that will lend to better social organization and um, where each individual can contribute something and, and, you know, lead to lead to more and more enriched experiences. It's very challenging to contemplate that I think in our current school context where a lot of a role that a teacher has is kind of bureaucratic and authoritative just like that's just what um you know the, the school administration like puts on teachers 
So we're definitely just reimagining the entire experience. You said um, that bit about, you know, just let the children go out and play. Like they don't need, maybe they don't need to learn this right now sort of thing. And I think that's, we have so many examples I think of where, you know, teachers saying that we're behind on a subject, right? Things are set up to be like, you have to be done by 18. You're out the door. You're done with education so that you can get into the labor force. And I think this underscores again, how difficult it is to have better education because it's framed around doing it at at particular instances and having things be done at certain times. And so being able to just take a day off for one student makes no sense in our current society because that student's now behind, right? And and then we see it even become like formalized into things like no child left behind, that kind of thing, where it's like, we're just going to get you through this. <laughs> there's nothing There's nothing going to stop us from just rubber stamping this. Yep. And when you have that sort of like standardization, you know, in a way it does make teaching easier in the sense that like you don't have to be creative. You don't have to accommodate students. You've just got, you know, whatever the book and you're going through the book in the order you're supposed to go through it. And I think that, yeah, what makes the, uh, this, these ideas of progressive education more difficult is this like balancing act that we were, that we talked about where it's like, the teacher is there and has a role to play, but it has to like, is a very specific role. It's like a very bad, like a lot of balance you have to, you have to strike between guiding students in a direction such that they're having these educative experiences while also like giving room for students who just need to take the day off. Right. And, uh, I think it, it plays into this idea that, uh, you see anarchists talk about a lot. Uh, I think David Graeber talks about it, but it's this like idea of different like levels of freedom almost. Uh, you know, when Dewey talks about like sort of mere mechanical freedom, your freedom of movement, right? It's like, there's a certain freedom and just be letting kids do whatever they want all the time. But there's like a deeper, like more meaningful sense of freedom in, in guiding somewhat what they do such that, they become people who have more options for experiences later on. Um, I'm going to quote Dewey here really quick. I really like how he conceives of this. He says, uh, for freedom from restriction, the negative side is to be prized only as a means to freedom, to a freedom, which is power, power to frame purposes, to judge wisely, to evaluate desires by the consequences, which will result from acting upon them power to select and order means to carry chosen ends into operation. And so, like, it's not just a matter of letting the kids do whatever they want. It's also a matter of empowering them to become these sort of people, you know, um, the people that uh, Ferrer talked about as continuing unceasingly to develop, capable of constantly destroying and renewing their surroundings, right? Like, that is a free person more in a more meaningful sense than someone who's just been allowed to do whatever they want their whole life. All of the works that we read use the word spontaneous and spontaneity a lot in different ways. And we were, we weren't sure whether, you know, maybe it's like a translation thing or a limited vocabulary or whatever it is thing, but do we really critiques the idea of that spontaneity? I feel like we've hammered this out already that you need, you can't just move in a direction. It needs to be like, right. Yeah. Not all growth is good. Not all spontaneous activity is good. 
but yeah, the way that uh, Ferrer and Goldman talk about spontaneity, I think they're not at odds with each other. I think Dewey just kind of like defines more specifically like what to do with that spontaneity. Yeah, for sure. And and there might be a sense, um, you know, we talked about this work being sort of like retrospective, you know, looking back on like the 20 or so years since he wrote the first piece, Democracy and Education. Uh, and so I think there's a sense of Dewey seeing maybe a little too much spontaneity in in the new schools and thinking that there needs to be like some sort of corrective to that. There's a quote here that maybe ties up what we were saying. Um, it says, we are told that our schools old and new are failing in the main task. They do not develop the capacity for critical discrimination and the ability to reason. The ability to think is smothered, we are told, by accumulation of miscellaneous, ill-digested information and by the attempt to acquire forms of skill which will be immediately useful in the business and commercial world. So the ends of education are to further capitalism. Yeah, exactly. And you can see, like, again, we talked about Dewey's maybe not as much of a radical as some of the other uh, writers that we've covered. Um, And I think this is maybe a good example in contrast with Ferrer, where like Dewey talks about the schools having failed. Whereas I think Ferrer would say that they succeeded in their purpose and that they were never meant to do these things that Dewey says that they were meant to do. I'll uh, end with one more quote here. I think, you know, might just sort of sum up Dewey's whole uh, philosophy on education here in one quote. Maybe we should have just read this instead of having this whole discussion. But (laughs) he says, there is, I think, no point in the philosophy of progressive education, which is sounder than its emphasis upon the importance of the participation of the learner in the formation of the purposes which direct his activities in the learning process. Just as there is no defect in traditional education greater than its failure to secure the active cooperation of the pupil in construction of the purposes involved in his studying. And this brings us back to the title of his original book, which is Democracy and Education. And uh, he's a big believer that the right way to do it is just to involve the kids, you know. And I tend to agree, you know, that almost any enterprise can be helped with more more democracy more involvement of the people affected by it. We keep biting off such massive topics and I think it's unavoidable. I don't know. This is just my brain just explodes into like all of these. Everything is connected possibilities and education is definitely one of those things. So I hope that everyone listening to this has maybe picked up something to chew on, but mostly is just even more confused than they were at the beginning. Yeah. If so, then we've done our job. (laughs) (laughs) You know, before uh, we leave, is there anything going on that you're excited about or you're interested in or that is cool? I've been racking up a hell of a lot of book debt lately. I've been flipping through a lot of different things. So I'm excited to chat about those off the record to try and figure out what we're going to do next. I guess one thing I might say, uh, although I'm going to be very vague about this because just in case it doesn't end up happening. Uh, But I'm going to uh, hopefully guest on another podcast soon to talk about one of my favorite uh, series of fiction books. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that. Maybe we can get that on the feed here. Not, not as a little meta, I guess, but this podcast has been really cool. And uh, so I've been just like daily excited about it and uh, maybe more weekly, although (laughs) I don't think about it that often, but um, yeah, it just feels like, uh, 
I'm surprised by kind of the reach that it's had already. And uh, if anyone wants to talk to us, like you should hit us up on Twitter and stuff because um, we really enjoy getting those messages. Like we talk about it all <laughs> and are very excited about it. So that that's, that's what I'm really into right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we've all just been sort of really humbled by the response we've gotten from you all. Um, yeah. So keep it coming. Only good stuff though. Yeah, I'm not ready for the bad stuff yet. You can send all the bad stuff to me personally. Just address it to me on Instagram. I'll read it. I'll filter it. I'll decide whether <laughs> Tom and Nate's tender eyes get to see it. We're here Are for all Are you filtering out the bad stuff already? Is this already happening? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Giving us a false idea here. <laughs> uh, why don't you give the uh, the name of that Instagram page? Yeah, we are on Instagram at uh, works.in.theory. You can find us if you search on any of the old people social media platforms, uh, Works in Theory podcast. I think we're, are we Works in Theory podcast or Works in Theory pod on uh, on Twitter? On Twitter, we're simply at Works Theory pod. Yeah, so shoot us a DM or, uh, you know comment on our on our episodes we, we post them all there and uh yeah we'll be happy to to hear from you so with no further ado that was works in theory podcast uh our theme music is done by wolg our editor is allison forest Frieder, and uh our producer is ursula thank you all for listening and we will see you next month Communism works in theory.